Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our storytelling family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on our unblushing theme, Good Witch, Bad Witch. We are exploring stories about misplaced judgment from our story slammers. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. During the slam, we leave space for members of our audience to share a five-minute story. This summer, we are following the yellow brick road with tales told live, without notes or inhibitions, in the walled yard of the old Idaho penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Now, we'll be hearing from random audience members from the Lullaby League and the Lollipop Guild. There's no place like late night. There's no place like late night. Sven? What's up? Oh, okay, well. So I'm Steven. Uh, some people call me Sven. By the way, I run sound for Story Story Night, and I've been threatening to do this for years, and uh, finally got the guts to put my thing in the hat. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just in case you're wondering, uh, you see me staring at my phone a lot. It's because that's how I run the sound system here, uh, or I'm trying to avoid talking to somebody. I got to tell you, this is smartphones in general are an introvert's dream come true. Uh, now, that said... A few years ago, I had a friend named Allison who gave everybody nicknames. She was the first one to call me Sven. And I had just gotten a new roommate who she aptly named Glenda. (laughs) Now, when I first interviewed Glenda, I had creeped on her on the internet beforehand. And a footnote, she happened to be half of a first lesbian married couple to get divorced in South Carolina. That's just an aside. Now... (laughs) Fast forward to the interview, which I'm giving her a tour around the house, and uh, everything is like fun and jovial, and I'm really clicking with her, and it's, yeah, I get a good vibe, and she's like, okay, I really like you, but I gotta ask a question. Are you conservative or liberal? I'm like, what? I don't even know how to answer that. Okay, because I'm a lesbian, if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with me. First few months go by, okay, everything is great. You know, she has a couple of cute little dogs that like to visit with me, and she doesn't cause too much of a fuss. And uh, I have a very staunch rule in my house, no overnight visitors without my knowledge. And she would uh, have visitors over at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, whatever, fine. As time went on, she started getting sloppier. Along with the sloppiness also came visitors. Her room was right next to mine at 2, 3 a.m., sometimes later. She apparently had a different definition of overnight than I did. So I didn't get much sleep. For more than one reason, if you know what I mean. Um, (laughs) But she also had this psychotic ex-girlfriend. I don't remember her name, but I would come home from work. I I could see evidence that somebody had been prowling around my backyard. I I could tell that like the dog door in the back was folded up kind of weird, like somebody had tried to squeeze through it. And, uh, you know, one time she busted in, uh, Glenda had forgotten to lock the door, 2 a.m., she busts in and walks into her room and starts yelling at her, and, of course, I'm just hearing screaming, and it's like, I wish I had a shotgun at the time, because it'd be like, it's time to go home, honey. (laughs) One time, my neighbor caught her hiding behind one of my bushes, with the sprinklers running, mind you, with a two-by-four in hand. What are you doing here? You don't understand what's going on in this house. No, 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 I don't care. You get out of here, I'm calling the cops. Never saw her again. It was around that time that I decided it was time for Glenda to go. She took it pretty well. (laughs) 
No, I'm serious, but uh, you know, we, we parted on relatively decent ways. I think she understood my motivation. She couldn't follow the house rules and, you know, for several other aspects as well. But uh, the main was uh, overnight visitors and psychotic ex-girlfriends that like prowling around on my property. That wasn't spelled out in the rental agreement, but I have since added that in a no nudity clause, by the way, because I would be talking to her upstairs. She'd be dressed nicely, like she's ready to go to work. I go downstairs to, to start a pot of tea. I come back upstairs and she's buck naked. Of course, she's scared every single time. You're a 45 year old woman. Either be dressed or be used to be seen naked. I don't know. <laughs> So uh, I, I gave her plenty of time. You know, our, our rental agreement was monthly, so either one of us could back out of it any time if we wanted. And I, I gave her 30 days to leave, and she wound up staying like an extra month, which was fine. She was making an effort. I get that. After I was cleaning out the, what was left over room, I had given her a, a little mini fridge because there wasn't enough room in my refrigerator for her stuff. And I'm not kidding you. There was left in there a small jar of pee. Juliana Myra? Um, hi, guys. It's been a long time since I've done this. I used to do stand-up with Amos. Round of applause for Amos. Who got me to sign up. Um, so my story is about vengeance in a time I was the bad witch. Surprise, surprise. Um, so... I went to Catholic school, unfortunately, with my younger sister, who had a propensity for mischief. And one day she found my diary. Oh, yes. And so for show and tell that year, oh, it gets real bad. For show and tell that year, my beautiful sister took my diary to school and read the passage about me liking girls. And then revealed my crush's name. <laughs> yeah, who promptly stopped talking to me, cut communication, told her parents, who told my parents, that uh, not only had I bought my ticket to hell, but I was uninvited from all girls' birthday parties henceforth. So, I like girls and boys. Yes. So, like, I still got invited to the boys' parties, which was weird. I was like, hmm, what am I doing here? <laughs> I really don't like anything you guys like. Uh, don't pass me the football. <laughs> yeah. So, um, to get her back, I plotted for months. We used to go to this um, summer camp together um, called Juniper Mountain Outfitters. It's in Cascade. Yeah. We got some horse girls in the audience. Giddy up, my friends. Anyway, um, we used to go to this horse camp, and my sister had forgotten all the havoc she had wreaked in my life, but I had not. And so when we got to horse camp, I was like, bring it on, bitch. My parents aren't here, and neither are yours, which happened to be the same. But um, yeah, the parents weren't here, and I was a counselor in training, and I had control and the keys to a tractor. So, all week long, I pranked my sister relentlessly. One night, I convinced all the campers that I would not cook them breakfast if they did not help me unload 150 hay bales from said tractor, 
in front of my sister's tent to box her in. Yeah, it was really fun watching her scramble around at six in the morning going, shit, and like her little legs kicking out and she couldn't get out of the hay bales, which were stacked way, way above her height. And um, yeah, I kind of got in trouble for that one because the horses didn't get fed, but it was worth it. So worth it. Uh, the next prank I pulled was the culminating one, the masterpiece, if you will. I gave every camper in that camp a bottle of shaving cream and instructed them to stand outside of my sister's tent upon the last day of camp. And when she woke up in the morning and opened her little tent flap, it was right to the dome. And in her confusion, I grabbed her by the hair and dragged her to the corral, whereupon I found a fresh pile of horse shit and stuffed it in her mouth and said, talk shit now. Rob Whiting? Whiting? Hi, everybody. Uh, I'll start with a caveat to me speaking. Um, I am not a professional in any sense. Uh, it's been some time since I spoke publicly. That's why I like the anonymity of the shades. You're lucky. I'm not still sporting the COVID screen, too. We're going to miss that. I think a lot of us know that. Um, but I did ex recently accept a job that uh, is going to involve some public speaking. So when I'm in situations like this and such an opportunity presents itself, I find it, it just helps you get in the swing of things, right, to help you think on your feet in situations like that. That's why the notes, um, when I realized the theme to put my hat, my hat in the ring, uh, I had to start thinking about times of you know, misplaced judgment. Um, and it, it really didn't come to me that easily. Y'all know, it's, it's not something that people often associate, misplaced judgment, with straight white males. It's very, very rare. Um, so it hasn't happened to me too often. <laughs> but I did think of one circumstance. It was when I, it was, I was in college. You know, there's a time and a place for everything. And it was when I learned about passion. I was, I was in Europe, actually. I was doing the most upper middle class crap ever. I'd studied abroad in North Africa and decided to backpack, backpack around Europe from hostel to hostel. You know, I was thinking about how I was going to save the world, and I was reading a lot of Brady Tanellis and, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. Slaughterhouse-Five was in there for sure. Um, and I also didn't know how to balance a checkbook, but the world was what mattered. Um, anyway, uh, it was when I learned that love is more than passion, right? I will never forget it. I was in Greece. Uh, it was over the summer, and I remember it was 2004, um, because it was the year that Greece had won the European Cup in football, what you punters call soccer, apparently. Um, anyway, uh, there had been a great party. I was on an island called Peros, um, staying at a hostel, and I had just come from Italy, and I had gotten really hooked on good cappuccinos, like very dry cappuccinos, which, again, pretentious as hell. I acknowledge that. Um, Anyway, if you know a good place in Boise, let me know. Uh, so I'd found this cafe. It's a good cafe bar right next to the sea on this island of Paros. I, was, I went there one day just to read. Um, I remember I was reading a New Yorker because they had good long form 
I, I forget when I got into that, but I'm just I'm really piling on here as far as ability to resent me. But I'm sitting at I'm sitting at the bar, um, just with a, and I, I I walk up to the bar with my New Yorker right at the same time as somebody else is walking up, and I sit down, settle myself up in the New Yorker, and I just put a two in the air, the cappuccino, right. Um, I see the person next to me moving. I look over. It is, it's a Greek girl. Great uh, olive skin, wonderful looking, um, beautiful girl. And she, she's sitting down right next to me at the coffee bar. So I just look ahead and start reading my New Yorker. And I'm reading through it. Just trying to play it cool, which I thought was a thing at the time. Um, clearly not anymore. But... Uh, I, I waited a few minutes, and then, you know, I, I, I'm reading the New Yorker, getting really into it, um, into it, I just said about a New Yorker, sorry, and uh, I hear the cups get broken, or get brought out, I, get, I hear my coffee get put down on, on the bar, and a few minutes later, I, I reach out, have a sip of coffee, and put it down, I had been looking over at her, just to see if she was acknowledging me in any sense, not at all, of course, um, finally, I see that she looked at me just kind of sideways, just a bit of a, an exploratory glance. You know what I mean? And she did her, um, we met eye, eyes for a second, and her, she did that very curious and playful eyebrow arch. You know, you know what I mean? It just goes. <laughs> and uh, on this side. Um, sorry, I'm very forensic about these things. Anyway. Uh, and then she reaches down and she takes my cappuccino and takes a sip. And I was I was really drawn in by this. I didn't I didn't know what this meant. I was the, is this a Greek form of seduction or is she is this a Greek form of no that's my coffee now. I, I had no idea, right? So I just kept reading my New Yorker. I, I, didn't, I hadn't dealt with the circumstance of this nature before. So I waited a few minutes, and then I, I, I reached down again. And I, I, trembling a little, I really didn't know where this was going, but I took another sip of my cappuccino. And I, I waited a moment. Eyes met again. And I, I could see... Just that, that mild curiosity on her face that's so attractive and somebody you don't know yet, you know what I mean? Um, I, I noticed in pouty lips and I, she reached down and she took another sip of the cappuccino with eyes on mine. And this time it, it was very much like I was discovering the passion that we would share later. I, it was... It, it was pure passion. It was pure sensuality. Uh, I mean, she even had sucked in a little bit of extra foam as she was going, you know, and, um, <laughs> and uh, it, that, that it had begun, truly. I mean, it had begun what would become of us. And so I, I continued just reading my New Yorker and enjoying this feeling that I knew would only build and I took another sip of the cappuccino, and the passion was so ripe. It was, I mean, I could feel the heat of her finger on the cup. It, I could, it was her heat. It was not the cappuccino's. And my hand trembled, and, and she took another sip. And, and this time, there was even a little bit of foam on her lips. 
as she, she brought the cup away. It, it, was, it was a comfort with the passion that we would find, a familiarity almost at this stage. We had, we had really started to explore our passion together at this point. You know, our, our relationship, I could feel it was, it was, it was progressing, it was aging. Yeah, thank you. So this happened to you too, nice. Um, and I didn't know what else to make of it. I, I let this continue. I, I sipped again and I, I, you know, cappuccinos are not the biggest drinks in the world. And it, I was worried that it, I, at this point I was worried, right, that, that um, it wouldn't last forever. Uh, what had what had built between the two of us. And then she, she took another sip too. And I, I realized that the cappuccino was diminishing. I'm sorry, it was diminishing. That was actually just a catch in my throat. I had to try to play it off. Anyway, uh, it was diminishing and I could feel ultimately what would be left after, after this passion had run its course, right? I, you need more than passion to find that bond with somebody, to find that love, because I thought we had found that love. By that third sip, I mean, I was relishing the smudge of lipstick she was leaving on the cappuccino, and I could feel the heat of her fingers, like I said. It was like we had built so much, and I could feel what would be left after we had explored the passion. I, a difference in cultures, right? A difference in families, a difference in backgrounds, a difference in language. And we, we wouldn't have a common ground on which to build that, that deeper life that I think all of us really aspire to, right? And, and I, I knew that when the passion had run its course, we would start to resent each other. We would resent those differences that we had with each other. We'd come home from work, and we wouldn't be able to vent about our day to our partner. We wouldn't be able to share perspectives on how to discipline our children or our dog. We would not be... A, there wouldn't be anything besides the passion on which to build, right? And she took that final sip, and I knew that ultimately uh, one of us would, would make poor decisions out of that resentment. Very natural to make such decisions, especially in a place as passionate, as, as romped with discovery as Europe is. I was learning so much in college, and... So I, I knew what I had to do. So I, um, I took a, a gulp. I finished by gulp the rest of the cappuccino. <laughs> and at this point, she just looked straight at me. <laughs> right in the eyes. And I, I said, I, I'm sorry, but we both know this couldn't have gone any other way. And then I stood up from the bar. I started getting my stuff ready to go. And there behind the New Yorker was my cappuccino. <laughs> so I went back to the hostel and I rubbed one out. Sky. 2012 and I'm standing on stage with my Idaho hometown friend and next to him is his father and next to his father 
is the mayor of Stockton, California. His father leans over and pins a brand new, freshly minted police badge on his son. And his son also had the accolade of winning or earning top of his class. Now, after Joe graduated, he went through the field training officer protocol, and he had field training officers that, <laughs> uh, that he admired. Now, once he completed that section of his you know, career, he was eligible to have a ride-along. Now, a ride-along is where a civilian can sign some papers and hop in with the police officer and go along with his shift. So I signed those papers, and Joe lines up a Saturday evening, the late shift, in the most dangerous part of Stockton. And it happened to be a full moon. <laughs> now, I hop into that SUV, and we're 20 minutes into Joe's shift, and the radio goes off. Joe becomes silent. And then he says, I'm glad we're next to the freeway. The lights go on, the siren goes on, we hit the freeway and we are flying down that freeway. Cars are melting away. And we dip down into this very rough looking apartment building. And we're the second officer on scene. The first officer is pulled up, door open. He's standing there with his gun drawn at his hip, talking to the Hispanic gal who's 15 feet in front of him telling her, you're doing a great job right now, keeping the pressure on this shirtless man's neck who's been stabbed multiple times across him. Now, Joe in his SUV lines up with the other officer. And right before he gets out of the car, he turns and looks at me and says, don't get out of the fucking car. <laughs> Closes the door and both officers go out of my view. So now I'm looking at this woman who's trying to maintain pressure on this young man who's just jacked up on adrenaline. And he'd stand up abruptly from time to time and just drop and then come back to life. And the whole time, this woman is holding this blood-drenched T-shirt against his neck. It was about seven minutes until the rest of the cavalry showed up the fire, the ambulance, and so forth. And I'm staying there looking at this guy bleeding to the brink of death until all of a sudden everyone comes in, he's on a stretcher, in the ambulance, and on his way out. <clears throat> and eventually, Joe hops in to the SUV and explains to me, well, so that guy is a part of the Norteño gang, which is Mexican-American gangsters, and he's in a Sureño neighborhood, which is Mexican-born gangsters. Naturally, the next step is to go up to the Norteño neighborhood to see if they're going to mount up a retaliation for one of their members being stabbed in the neck. And we head up into that Norteño neighborhood, and it's just as rough looking as that Sureño neighborhood. And as we get in there, there is this very big statured 
gangster-looking guy who's wearing shorts and is all tatted up, and Joe says, oh, hey, that's Martinez. I know Martinez. And he pulls over, and right before he gets out of the car, he goes, don't get out of the fucking car. I'm like, oh my God. And I sit there and watch Joe walk up to Martinez, and it appears as a very serious conversation. And then it turns to these guys, kind of shooting the shit. They're laughing, they're cracking jokes, like they're old friends. And sure enough, Joe comes and walks back up, and he says, hey, you want to meet a gangster? I was like, I thought I wasn't allowed out of the car. He was like, no, you're not, but let's go. And I walk up to Martinez and shake his hand, and Joe said, so, you got any questions for Martinez? Put on the spot, and I said, well, you know, Martinez, do you, you have any you know, memorable tattoos? And he said, absolutely. So he showed his right hand, and between his finger and his pointer, right on this piece were four dots. And he earned those when he was jumped in to the Norteño gang. Now, as that conversation was winding down, Joe said, hey, Martinez, you still got that scar? And Martinez laughed a little bit and pulled up his knee. And sure enough, there's this big scar on the left side of his knee. I said, oh, OK. And we're walking away. And Joe said, well, I'm happy that you're sticking with your rehabilitation program and so forth. And you don't have a good night. And we hop back into that SUV. Now, how did Joe know about Martinez's scar? And I learned that while Joe was going through that field training scenario, and he was being led by these new officers, or he was a new officer learning, Martinez was definitely not sober. And Joe's field training officer was trying to restrain him. And Martinez got loose and nailed Joe. They connected, and they both hit the ground hard. It split Joe's elbow and put a huge gash in Martinez's knee. Now, Martinez was arrested, and he went to the hospital, chained to the bed. And Joe was also treated in that same hospital. And later in the evening, Joe said, well, you know, I'm going to go talk to him. I feel like this is a better opportunity. Cooler heads, and I'm going to have a conversation. And he went over and sat next to Martinez, and they talked, and... At one point, Martinez looked at Joe and said, hey, man, I, I apologize. I, I got out of pocket. And Joe's like, that's all right, man. You know? And in a very formal way, Joe explained to him the actions of the police and that the outcome was something that they both didn't want. Now, prior to me meeting Martinez, I was sitting there watching a cop and a crook who had bonded and both had this shared empathy on trying to maintain peace in the city that they love. Now, Joe wanted to find a way to have the biggest impact that he can have in his community. And years later, and what he's doing now, is he is that field training officer and what he does is reinforces those new officers in Stockton to tell them that who they serve 
that the officers live amongst who they serve. And those they serve are the humanity that unites them. And with that, I have a new perspective and a new judgment as to what it takes to be a police officer. And still to this day, Joe gets a kick out of it because he'll tell me, don't get out of the fucking car. Fran. Hello. I've been up here a few times. But today I'm going to start my story with Christmas Eve 1994. The lights were twinkling on the Christmas tree. The two kids were in bed. And I was trying to judge just how nice I had been that year. Or perhaps I should have been judging just how naughty I had been that year because about nine and a half months later, my third child was born. (laughs) And I think really what I misjudged was that window of fertility, right? (laughs) So I think a lot about misjudgments. You know, how do we get to these misjudgments? And I think in that particular case, it wasn't really a lack of information or too much information, but it was really my selfishness and my desire of the moment. I wanted that moment under the Christmas tree (laughs) more than I wanted the responsibility of making sure that getting pregnant didn't happen. My youngest is now 26, and she is a mother of a three-year-old, so I hope she has learned those lessons better than I have. But I think, I think about the times when we misjudge because we don't have the right information at the right time. So twice I've fallen, I've misjudged my next step, and I've broken my nose, and I broke my leg. Both times it was because I didn't judge the slipperiness of the rocks that I was going to step on, or that there was a big log in front of me. And so I suffered those consequences. The other instance that happened was on a day that I played hooky from grad school, I decided I was going to go to my favorite hot springs. I typically don't tell people what those are anymore because I don't want you guys all necessarily to know where it's at. I will only say that this was a hot spring that I normally hiked into, but this particular year, on my birthday, playing hooky from grad school, I drove to this hot spring. And it was great. I had the entire hot spring to myself. I packed a picnic lunch. I packed wine. I packed my journal. It was a fantastic day. My family, my husband and my three children, were going to have a birthday party for me at 6 o'clock that night. No problem, right? Well, as I'm driving back to the official road, my car gets stuck in the mud. On the way there to the hot spring, I didn't notice just a different color of the sand. You know, I didn't notice that on the way there, but when I am driving back to head home, 
that different color sand now has a stream of water running through it. And so I say, hmm, well, I might as well try, right? <laughs> so I try, and I bury my car almost to the top of my wheels. So there's a lot more to that story, which I won't go into, but the gist of that misjudgment of that part of the road led me to spending a night in the middle of nowhere, led me to the process of getting a divorce through many years, and was pretty, I suffered a lot of consequences for that one misjudgment. But then there's a, a different set of circumstances of misjudgment. Those are the misjudgments where we have the information, but maybe we aren't processing it in the right way, or it's someone else's information and it's not our own. And I think about that because I think of all of the people I've misjudged, all of the circumstances I've misjudged, all of the books by their cover I've misjudged, but I think the person that I've misjudged the most is myself. And I have done that based on information that I've received all of the decades of my life from my mother who told me, why are you going to go to college? You're just going to get married and have babies. And a husband who told me, yeah, you're not going to make it on your own as I was leaving, as I was divorced. And I listened to those judgments, which were really other people's judgments, right? But I heaped that onto myself, and I made myself really small for a lot of years of my life. And it took a divorce. It took me living on my own for the first time ever. It took me saying, I can do this. You know, I believe, so I can, to prove not at first probably to other people, but then to myself that I do not need to judge myself so harshly, that I am capable and that I am strong and that I am going to live a glorious, beautiful, wonderful life. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find it too. Thanks to guest host Allison Meyer and musical guest Che. Support this podcast by texting StoryPod to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.